0: Amen. Thank you. Got a lot of cables going on up here. It's good to be with you this morning. I kind of feel like I got my spot back as the holiday preacher. This morning we're going to look at the parable of the soils, the parable of the seed, the parable of the sower. It's been about a year and eight months since you had a sermon on this. Dr. Stone preached in Luke 8 on it some 20 months ago or so, but uh, he gave me my choice, said we could preach on anything we wanted to today, and we chose this. So I think it's um, applicable for us today and as we come into the new year. We're going to read um, the passage a little bit longer than what's listed there. We're, uh, verses 1 through 9 is the uh, parable itself. Uh, the last few verses in the passage, Jesus gives us his interpretation of that parable, but there's a narrative in between which talks about the purpose of the parables. So we'll read all the way to um, verse 23. If you'd like to stand now, and we'll do the reading of God's word. You can follow along in your Bibles. If it's a pew Bible on page 818, we're in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23. And that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance." When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away." As for what has sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. It has proved unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, and indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Redeemer. Church, this is the Word of God. And what do we know about the Word of God? The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. Oh Lord, this is indeed Your Word. We pray that we would have open eyes and open ears, that we would see the fullness of what You have for us in Your Word this day. Please bless our time together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So immediately, uh, for me at least, I say, hey, what, what exactly is a parable? And there's been, uh, through the ages, a lot of discussion about that. Um, parabole is the Greek word, I can say that now. Mark, parabole, And um, in the Septuagint, the Hebrew, both kind of have the same broad range of meaning. It could be a proverb, a taunt, a riddle, or an allegory story type uh, in the New Testament. Uh, a proverb, a metaphor, a riddle, figure of speech, a symbol, allegorical story. The modern scholarship, I think, kind of agrees that there's definitely allegory in a parable. But they are um, cautious to say, don't press every point within the story. It's a modest allegory. Don't press every point. Dr. Caro, who was here a few weeks ago, uh, has chapter in one of my textbooks where he talks in length about parables. And um, he talks about that there's always a surface level meaning to a parable, but there's a deeper level, intended applications from the parable itself. Um, He likes to group parables into three categories. A simile, which is like the kingdom of God is like, which you see in, say, the parable of the mustard seed. He says there are fictional exemplary story parables, where you say, like uh, the Good Samaritan, and an allegorical story, the lost sheep are compared to lost men in uh, Luke 15. So I was listening to one of my uh, former pastor's sermon on, um, on the parable of the soils, and he had kind of an interesting connection. And I think it's worthy for us to get it in our minds a little bit. But he, he, t- he said that a parable was a bit of a political cartoon. It was obvious that he had some screen up behind him. He could point to some <laughs> cartoons that he was given and as an example, so I'll just have to, for you uh, younger folks, uh, we used to have this thing called a newspaper. <clears throat> and in the, it was my favorite thing to do when I was young to go to the newspaper and find the comic strips and you'd read like Peanuts or Blondie, Calvin and Hobbes, B.C. was one of my favorite, Beetle Bailey, and they sometimes they would have political undertones in the comic strip itself. I remember distinctly as a, a, a youngster in a history class, and we were learning about Theodore Roosevelt and his big stick policy, and where he would have you know speak softly but carry a big stick. And I can still picture in my mind today of that that cartoon of that policy. And in some ways, that's The role of a parable is to help us remember, help the disciples remember and, hey, remember when he told about the parable of the seeds and they could remember more of the deal. And and, uh, um, I got to give, Curtis Blackburn had a Facebook post recently that I think is, uh, you know, Dr. Stone talks about these great uh, movies or books, well, the only thing I have to offer today is Napoleon Dynamite. And if you've never seen it, don't worry about it. It's a waste of time. <laughs> but but um, there is a character in this movie called Uncle Rico. He's my favorite character in the movie. And Uncle Rico is kind of a, an 80s, a middle-aged guy who's trying to be cool in the 80s. He wants to be groovy. And he's trying to be cool. And there's a scene, I guess they're in California, kind of out in the deserts on the outskirts of town. And he's got his vintage van over here open and a, and a video camera set up. And he's doing football poses. And he's filming himself. He's all alone filming himself doing these football moves. Well, Curtis posted on Facebook this epic picture of that. The van, Uncle Rico, and the video camera. And the subtitle was, The Kaepernick Tryouts. So today we, can, we still get that, we understand, but a few years from now that will be lost and gone. So I think it's worthy to when we come toward the parables today, especially since this is a monumental parable uh, in section in, in Matthew, that we look a bit at the, the setting that got us there. Uh, before we do that though I will just say that Dr. Kerr also gives 10 recommendations for interpreting parables. I won't give you all ten, but four of them are that a parable often refers to Jesus Himself. In other words, the pearl of great price, the answer is the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Right? The man who found the buried treasure is is a Sunday school answer. The answer is Jesus. And so you don't have to dig too deep to make the parable be about Jesus. But also that number two is parables will generally have a redemptive historical character them. It's about the advancement of the kingdom. In other words, the parable of the mustard seed, which starts small but grows into the big tree. That's part of our kingdom parables that we're at today. Or the parable of the leaven, which leavens the whole lump. It's an advancement of the kingdom. His third point uh, to share is that details are usually true life portrayals of the time, but they're somewhat unrealistic, like the great banquet where no one comes, and they go out into the street. And lastly, that usually the deeper meaning of a parable invites the audience to judge themselves and see: Do they? Where do they fit within this parable? And does their their mind align with the definition of Christ or the definition of His kingdom? And if not, uh, what should they do about it? Okay. There's some distinctiveness about our parable today. The Parable of the Soils is my favorite title. There's a, that's one of the distinctiveness about it. It's sometimes called the Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Seed, the Parable of the Sower and the Seed. I like to call it the Parable of the Soil. So that's one of the distinctivenesses. All the scholarship can't decide on a title. Right? The other thing is that it's one of seven kingdom parables. You've reached a point in Matthew's gospel where he's now going to give you seven parables called the kingdom parables. And um, in verse um, 33, 34 of our passage, it's clear that when he taught them that day that all he did was um, use parables. Matthew 13, 34 says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So that's one of the distinctives, is that it's one of the seven. We've actually listed, now including ours, five of the seven. What we haven't talked about is the parable of the dragnet and the parable of the wheat and tares. Of the seven parables, one of the things that make... Our parable distinctive. It's only one of the two that Jesus and Himself interprets for us. He interprets the parable of the soils, and he interprets the wheat and the tares. That's one of the things that makes this parable distinctive. Another distinctive aspect of the parable of the soil, the seeds, the sower, is that it's the only parable that's in all three synoptic gospels. None of the synoptics. Totally cover all seven kingdom parables. All three of them have this parable within them. And we learn from Mark uh, that one of the distinctives in Mark, thir- uh, when Mark is uh, given us this parable, he tells us in verse 13, Jesus is kind of surprised at his disciples. And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So, one of the things that makes the, the parable of the soil distinctive is that it is a key to understanding all of the parables according to Jesus. <clears throat> Lastly, it's a turning point uh, in Jesus' ministry. We read, and we've read 34 and 35 that he spoke the entirety to them in parables, but the question in the disciples' mind is why now? are you speaking in parables? They say, why are you telling them in parables? So there's a shift in this ministry at this point we'll talk about later. Oh, and I will add too that I don't think it's an accident that in all three synoptics, when they give us this parable, they link either right before the parable or right after the section about Jesus being in the house and his mother and brothers not being able to get to him. They can't fight through the crowd and get to him. And, and his comment is, who are my mother? Who, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And so he asks that question, and these are, these are my brothers. This is my mother. He points to the people around him here. So there's this link, I think. In fact, in our passage that we read this morning, it said that same day, which is just following the uh, passage at the end of chapter 12 of the people, of his mother and brothers trying to get to him, and he asked the question, who are they? And I think that's an important point as we try to figure out what the parable is saying to us. So, we come to the parable itself, and uh, Matthew sets up the scene. And it's a scene, it's not the first time that, he's seen, that we've seen great crowds and busy crowds... But this crowd is so big that it's, uh, he thinks that he needs to give us uh, a real good visual of what's going on. See, they were so big that he got into the boat and he pushed out into the water a little bit and they stayed on the beach. Dr. Fowler, when he taught the Gospels class to us um, a few months ago, uh, says he's, he's visited the spot that they think this is, took place at. And it's a natural amphitheater, so God's created this spot for this moment. Dr. Fowler said when he's there, they send a guy out to swim a little bit into the water, get on a rock, and you can hear uh, the guy speak there. I've never been there myself. But that is the scene as this crowd, maybe bigger than any other crowd that they've seen so far, is in this special spot at this special moment. Now... There's a lot been going on that's led us up to this point. How has He gotten all these crowds? Jesus, baptized by John, goes into the wilderness and uh, stands up to the temptation of Satan and comes out firing. In chapter 4 of Matthew, He's teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. So His fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. And great crowds follow him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So he's come out firing healing and speaking, and the great crowds are gathering at the close of the Sermon on the Mount. At the very end of Matthew 7, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them at one who had authority and not as their scribes. His authority becomes so well known that the centurion, remember he doesn't even, when he goes, he has a servant who is sick. He needs to be healed. Jesus says, I'll come to you. And he says, no, I have authority over soldiers. And I know I just speak the word and it happens. And so it's become so apparent of Jesus' authority, the Straturian says, just say it and it will happen. And that is indeed what happens as Jesus simply says to be healed and the servant is healed at that very moment. So the the authority becomes apparent to the people. The miracles are real. But the first tactic that the scribes and Pharisees use, I think, in trying to combat the miracles can be found in, in John where it's where the blind son is healed and what they try to in chapter 9 they try to put the proposition out there that Jesus is using trickery the big the big question is who whose son are you are you the son and so the scribes and the Pharisees in the beginning are trying to say Jesus is using trickery to pull off his miracles and they finally they can't prove that they And so they began to think other thoughts. And their targets become blasphemy. In Matthew 9, we read about when the paralytic is is lowered through the roof. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And right there it says, it's in their hearts they're considering blasphemy. This man is blasphemy. But he says that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Rise and walk. And he's able to heal the man. And it's sort of all... Comes to a head finally in Matthew 12, right before our passage, where there is a demon-possessed man in Matthew 12:22, who was blind and mute, and was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed, and they said, "Can this be the son of David?" But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, "It is only by..." Bezobel, by the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons, Bezalel, Bezalel, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin... And blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age has come. It has come to a head. You can say things about the Son of Man, but when you say that I am working under the Spirit of Satan... And not doing the miracles by the Spirit of God, you have blasphemy. And now Jesus begins to tell the parable of the soils. And I think that's a critical understanding as we want to look at the first parable, parable of the first situation of the parable of the soil, which is the one that falls on the pathway. Another thing to consider is the Jewish eschatology. The Jew understood, he did not doubt, that the Messiah was going to come. Their eschatological line was very simple, though. There was this present age from Genesis to the coming of the Messiah. And after the Messiah who comes conquering, carrying a big stick only, He destroys all the evil, he destroys the evil nations, and now he ushers in the new kingdom. It's this type of Messiah arrival that is in their minds. And it is what Jesus tries to deal with in the parable of the soil. Remember, John the Baptist was a little confused. He sends his disciples in um, in Matthew 11. Are you the one? because he's not seeing the eschatological type of framework that they were expecting. The Pharisees asked Jesus in uh, Matthew 12, show us a sign, give us a sign. They're looking for that sudden, harsh, conquering Messiah along their eschatology graph so they can understand what's going on but jesus is going to tell them a different story when we come to our parable we kind of have to start from the inside out and look at the narrative first we eat from the middle and eat out from there he's we come to the question of why are you speaking to them in parables and jesus answer is clear it's because there is a mystery about the kingdom that is for you to know and not them so what is this mystery that is what what is mysterious here that we should know and the mystery is simple is that the messiah is coming walking softly talking softly the messiah has come in a, in a way that he is not yet carrying his big stick. It's, it's a, the kingdom has come. The God has intervened in history with his son. But it's unrecognizable to the masses because it's in an unexpected way. And so what is this unexpected way? Well, it's a way in which there's still tension. There's still possibilities of things going wrong. It's a kingdom that when it will be told, there's a chance that you might not understand it, that you might not believe it. And so you have, in essence, these four conditions that He gives us about the soil or the seed of the sower. In the first condition, Jesus' explanation is this. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. What has been sown in his heart, this is what has been sown along the path. It is a path that is hardened. It has been walked on by men. And there's no penetration of this seed into that heart, into this soul at all. Interestingly enough, though, he also says... That the analogy between the birds coming and eating this seed is Satan himself. Mark says the words. Mark's passage says Satan immediately comes and takes it away. Luke says the evil, the devil, comes and takes it away. But Jesus has bound the strong man. The Satan is bound so that the kingdom of God and the Word of God can commence through the earth, and yet at his instrument, as his instrument, Satan progresses to eat this seed so that there is no bonding between it and the soil. These men, I think, the majority of the people that he's talking about in soil number one are these men who have committed blasphemy against the Spirit. They've spoken of how Jesus' works could not be the works of the Holy Spirit. But we know people today as well who simply will not accept Christ as a son of God, as the the prophet who works in the fullness and magnitude of the spirit, as God's own son who came to save the world of its sins. This rejection, this hardness of heart is the people in soil number one. Soil number two, this is the rocky ground soul. This is the one who hears the word of God or hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, joy, yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. This is a superficial soil, it's, it's not very thick, it's impulsive. He hears with joy, but then the sun scorches him. The, he's tested, persecuted, tried because of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, but he falls away. He withers. I'll call up Dr. Kerr's fourth point. How do we fit? How do you fit? Does testing, trial, like you run from the word, or do you fall into another soil category? And then you come to the thorny soil. This is What Jesus says in verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is the preoccupied soil. The hostile to the kingdom actually, because the the care for the world and the um, deception of the world things choke out the kingdom the word of the kingdom so it's actually hostile to again when you look at your life how are you dealing with the cares of the world the deceptions of riches so here you have three types of soil it says in, in essence together that eternal life for these people under the kingdom Of heaven which has arrived but eternal life is in jeopardy there's a kingdom established but not fulfilled that's going on right now in our life and it's these this tension this jeopardy that the rulers could not understand they couldn't see that it would actually come in this way and then finally the fourth soul for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, he understands the word, and he bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. This is showing us, though, that in this kingdom, there is indeed the power of God who works mightily. He, there are those that hear and understand, and His word is dear to them. Their roots are buried deep in a good and nurturing type of soil. They are not exempt from scorching, from testing, from persecution, of being overcome by cares, from deception and snares and desires and pleasures of this life, but they are fruitful and they have an abundant fruit that grows out of their relationship with this soil. At the end of the Gospels, as we come to the close of the Gospels, we find in Matthew 21 that Jesus tells parables and the scribes and the Pharisees now know He's describing them. But at the end, the disciples are getting a little confused about what is this message about dying and a cross. So the tables turn. We see it's a little counterintuitive, isn't it, that you have a ministry And suddenly you're going to talk in parables so people won't understand? It goes against about everything. We're we're always looking for the good teacher, the good pastor, to make things clear and understandable. Yet Jesus flips it all around. At the end, this mass of people has grown to just a few gathered at the foot of the cross. The disciples are dispersed. But then is the resurrection. And then the Helper comes. And so what you see from the day of Christ in that glorious scene by the sea of this mass of people in which He speaks in parables to the few dozen at the foot of the cross, look today. Look around you. Is it not? Look at the world. Has not this message of life, of eternal life through Jesus Christ grown and blossomed and continues to do so as the mustard tree as the leaven which seems so small that can't possibly affect this whole wad of dough yet the whole wad of dough rises this is the message of the parable of the soils john's version i think of the parable of the soils possibly is the you know the abiding in john 15 it's about this relationship with the Son and the Father and how we can enter into that relationship between the Son and the Father. But that coming time, that that time to come, is dependent upon how we have a relationship now. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is, extend your roots into this soil. Gather all of the nutrients of the words of this kingdom that are there. Drink of this water, drink of the cup of my blood, eat of my flesh. It's an abiding. That's why he gives the, the front end or the tail end of who are my brothers? Who is my mother? It, this is a kingdom where God is searching, looking, finding those who are his. It's the opportunity that we have in this time to have a relationship that it will directly bear in the relationship in the time to come the good soil is Christ drink him up be failure to say or to end though without looking at the church the church is not the kingdom the church is built by the kingdom the church is there for his purposes as his instrument as his custodian of all of these things but when you see the Great Commission, and he talks about discipleship and about um, the Word and about the sacrament, this is indeed the role of the church in the life of this kingdom. And it's why we have this church planting mentality. We go and plant. It's the way in which this kingdom grows. and it's, But it's not in power. It's not forced down people. It's passive. It's walking softly. It has no big stick, right? It's the way in which the kingdom works. There's many more things, I think, that you can say and probably deduce from the soil, the parable of the soils. But I think all in all, the seven parable kingdoms of the sower, the wheat and tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price and the dragnet. Give this more ecclesiastical picture of what is occurring in the as beginning when God himself visits earth, intersects, intersects into the history of man as a Jesus Christ, softly, meekly, as a suffering Savior. And we now enter at his death and resurrection and we wait for the time to come we look forward to that day for his immediate return and the gathering and the harvesting of all his saints he who has ears let him hear father we are indeed grateful for your word we are so thankful for it for all that you have given us in it we ask lord that we would understand it that we could apply it jesus says who is my who are my people They are the ones who hear and do. We pray, Lord, that we will be doers of Your Word and that we will be hearers of it and all of truth and all that is pleasing to You. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's continue our worship as we will sing a hymn there in your bulletin. It's Almighty God, Your Word is cast.